I'm the dad of only two children, and so this is kind of a bold statement to say, but in my opinion, there are two kinds of kids in the world. There's kids who can go for a prolonged period of time without food before losing their minds, and then there's kids who can go for a prolonged period of time without taking a nap or sleeping without losing their minds. Now, our children happen to be the kind of children that you don't ever have to feed them. They're fine. They, they, they like food. They enjoy eating. Food is a good thing. But when they were little, you didn't have to feed them every two to three to four hours to keep them happy. What you did need to do was put them down every two to three to four hours to give them a nap. And of course, they needed to go to bed early and we wanted them to sleep as long as possible. And honestly, they get that from me. I could Fasting has never really been a super challenging thing for me. If I was going to really challenge myself, it would be going without sleep because I turn into a crank monster. And so my preferred day involves sleeping at least eight hours and a nap if I'm lucky. And so we've seen that. There's two kinds of kids in the world. They're ones that can get, go all day without eating much and they're fine, or the kids that can go all day without a nap and they're fine too. But we know that as, as important as naps are, especially to some students, to some children, that naps are no substitute for nighttime. We know that when we sleep through the night, part of the way that God designed us to work is that there's a lot of important things happening while we are asleep. Any quick Google search, you would be able to find some of the following benefits. You might already be aware of them. For instance, our memories and our learning processes are improved while we sleep. You cannot stick your textbook underneath your pillow and absorb the material through osmosis. That is a lie. We know that. But if you were to study before going to bed, your mind is processing that data while you sleep, and you will remember it. You will have better recall in the morning. So the longer you sleep after a period of study, the more time your mind has to process that information and give it back to you when you need it. Sleeping through the night, seven, eight hours, something like that, which is what is recommended for most adults, can ease chronic pain. You can actually take less Advil if you have a whole, an old high school football injury that's driving you nuts, and you usually take a couple Advil for it if you actually sleep eight hours a night. It has been shown that you don't have to take as much pain medication. It can help with chronic pain. As I have experienced and already mentioned, uh, many of us are just happier. We are more patient. We have a more capacity to experience the frustrations of everyday life without losing our mind. We become kinder and more patient drivers, and we're kinder and more patient with those that we work with and that we love. We're happier. Uh, if you are on a diet and you sleep eight hours a night, your body will do a better job shedding fat as opposed to muscle. If you do not get the sleep that you need, but you're dieting like crazy and you've kind of plateaued, one of the keys to a more effective diet and weight loss is actually sleeping eight hours a night. I know that that is my preferred diet plan is that I go to bed by nine and get up at six and, you know, that's what I like to do. And I eat donuts during the day. Uh, also, finally, I could go on and on and on, but the bottom line is uh, they did a study where they exposed ad adults after uh, various amounts of sleep. One control group got less than seven hours of sleep a night. They did this in Great Britain. The other control group got more than eight hours of sleep per night. After a week or two of that, they exposed them to the common cold virus. Those who had slept less than seven hours on average for the previous week or two were three times more likely to catch a cold. Your body's immunity system recharges itself while we're sleeping. You're actually more resistant to the common cold. Magical things happen while we are sleeping. 
what we're going to be talking about this morning, and we began last week, which is we talk all the time about the importance of placing our faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Last week, we answered the question, why did Jesus have to die? This week, we're going to answer the question, what was accomplished while he was in the grave? While Jesus' body was in a tomb, Jesus himself was very busy and was accomplishing all kinds of important things that we're going to take a look at this morning. We're going to answer the question, what was Jesus doing while his body was dead? Between Friday afternoon and Sunday morning, what was happening? Because it wasn't nothing. It's just like when we sleep through the night. Nothing is not happening. Something is happening. We're going to take a look at the scripture this morning and answer the question, what did Jesus accomplish while his body was in the grave? And then, of course, next Sunday, uh, what's the deal with the resurrection? And what might be of interest to some of you, proofs for the resurrection. We're going to be talking about that on Easter Sunday. So please be sure to invite a friend to come next Sunday, and we'd love to spend some time together exploring God's Word. In Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to be in Hebrews today. The passage that we're going to be landing is Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to be reading together beginning in verse 11. But Hebrews chapter 1, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, rather, verses 1 through 10, is setting the context for answering the question, what did Jesus accomplish while his body was in the grave? Now, if you've read the Bible at all, or, or if you grew up in church, or if you've been to Sunday school, or even if you didn't, you're probably familiar with the idea that before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you were a Jew, sacrifice was an important part of what you considered normal in worshiping God. That there had to be some way to approach the holy presence of God and the way that God lined out in the Old Testament through Moses, the leader and prophet of Israel, involved animal sacrifice, this, the, the shedding of innocent blood on behalf of those who had grieved God, who had sinned against God, made a degree of propitiation, made a degree of peace with God that he would be able to commune with his people. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, the author of Hebrews is describing that process. Interestingly enough, the funny thing about that process is, is everybody knew it was only a stopgap measure, that there was no way that the death of a lamb or a goat or a bull or a ram or a pigeon could ever make up for a human being who actually sinned against the Lord. We all, everybody knew it was a stopgap measure. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 8, specifically, the author says this, the Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. You may not know what the tabernacle was. It was a model for the temple. Of course, Solomon's temple was the most famous one. We do not have the temple today. We cannot look at it. If you have seen pictures of the Western Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, the Western Wailing Wall was a foundation level of terrace work that supported the Temple Mount. That's the only thing we have left from Solomon's temple is the foundation work or the terracing that was left under Solomon's temple. But both the tabernacle and the temple had this design. There was a large outer area, which was about the footprint of this entire school, a courtyard, if you will, stretched from about where the, the donuts and coffee are set up to the street, outer courtyard area where people could come. And for many people, that was as close as they could come to the Lord. Sacrifices were made on their behalf, and they could only enter the courtyard. 
Others were allowed to actually enter the tabernacle or later the temple. The tabernacle and the temple were about the size of this room inside the tent, inside Solomon's temple. It was about a 30-foot high ceiling and roughly the same dimensions as this room. Priests were allowed to enter that area regularly to assist in the, sacrifice, the sacrifices and the offering of incense. And then, of course, at the, in, the, in the heart of the temple, in the heart of the tabernacle, was what was known as the Holy of Holies, where God's presence actually dwelt at the Ark of the Covenant between the two angels that stood, uh, sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant facing each other. If you've seen Indiana Jones, it's right. That's, that's a pretty good picture. So uh, the presence of God was there in the Holy of Holies between the cherubim that was sitting on top of the Ark of Covenant. That room was separated from the rest of the tent or the temple by a veil, again, about 30 feet high, 20 or 30 feet long, and about six inches thick. And the Holy of Holies was about the size of this platform. That's about the size of the Holy of Holies. So that might help you get a, get a picture. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. You can only come so close to God. For most of us, we get to stand outside and watch the smoke of the sacrifice come up. For special people, they can actually enter into the tabernacle and be a part of the service and worship of God. And once a year, the high priest, with an offering of blood, could enter the Holy of Holies. He had bells sewn on the bottom of hem of his robe, along with a rope tied to one of his ankles. And the thought was that if the sacrifice did not please God, if he did not make the proper preparations when he entered the Holy of Holies on what is now called the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur at the end of September, that God would smite the holy priest, the, the priest dead. You would hear the crashing of the bells as his dead body hit the floor, and then you would know to pull on the rope. That was the normal for the temple. That was normal for the Israelites, for the Jews. This is what Hebrews chapter 9 begins by summarizing. Now, for us, for many of us, that might have been the first time we ever heard that stuff, and it sounds crazy, but that is in reality what was the common experience for Jews up until the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus came, everything changed, and here's why. We're going to answer the question right now, what was Jesus doing while his body was in the grave? The answer is found in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. Would you read along with me, please? But the Messiah has appeared, high priest of the good things that have come, in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Pause real quick. This is Pastor Josh again. The tabernacle and the temple were just copies of heavenly realities. In heaven, in eternity, there is an actual temple where the presence of God may be found, where he can be worshiped. And the heavenly or the earthly copies, the tabernacle and then the temple, were just copies of this. But there is an actual temple in heaven where God dwells. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. That is, not of this creation. He, Jesus, entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit 
offered himself without blemish to God. Cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Here's the problem with the temple sacrifices, everything that the Jews had ever known. Cows don't cut it. The cow did not make a decision to cheat on your wife. You did. So how on earth did slaughtering an innocent cow cleanse my conscience? The lamb did not lie to my neighbor. I lied to my neighbor. So how on earth is slaughtering an innocent lamb going to cleanse my conscience? And the answer is it doesn't. It's just ritual purification. It's a sign to God and the people that I'm trying to do the right things in the hopes that God will forgive me. And the writer of Hebrews goes, if, if that was the case, if that was the stopgap measure with animals, how much more powerful is the sacrifice of the Son of God? When Jesus died, he said to the thief on the cross, today I will be with you in paradise. Jesus went to heaven, and after he safely deposited this thief that he died with in eternal glory, he himself visited the temple, not the copy, the original that God has built for all eternity. He entered into the holy of holies as our high priest saying, I do not bring any blood other than the blood that I have spilt. I am making atonement for your people. And the Lord accepted that sacrifice. And at that moment, perfect cleansing of conscience from sin was now possible. You see, while his body was sleeping in the grave, he was very busy. There were some amazing things going on. Forgiveness for the first time became more than something of just a ritual status. It became an actual reality. For those of us who plead for forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ, it is based on the fact that the day he died, he entered the permanent and holy of holies with his own blood and satisfied the demand for justice. God will be perfectly holy and perfectly loving. As Jesus has sacrificed, so will his father save. And he anointed the altar in the holy of holies as a permanent reminder of his sacrifice. That's what happened while he was in the grave. Two or three years ago, I bought the truck that we use as the church to haul the trailer around and do different things. It's a used truck, 2012, 1500 series Ram. Does a great job. It was a dramatic improvement over my plow truck, which was literally dropping pieces of itself up and down 395 while I was hauling the trailer. I'd had it for about a week, and my nephews came up from Houston area to visit us. I love my nephews. They are amazing men, wonderful, intelligent guys who are very prone to motion sickness. Long story short, I took my nephews on a ride in the truck from Putnam, where we live, down to the Mystic Seaport to meet their parents to tour the seaport that day. On the way, being the good uncle that I am, I stopped for coffee culadas, which my nephews consumed in the back seat of the truck. Now, the truck, of course, has new truck smell, which, as every guy knows, is better than new car smell because it's a truck. It's not quite as good as new motorcycle smell, but it's close. It's new truck smell. I still had new truck smell in my truck. New truck smell is a mixture of uh, testosterone with chainsaw. Uh, guys, we know this. 
women, that's why I explain it. You may not be clear on this, but, and motorcycle, new motorcycle smell just goes to a whole new level. I'll get into that some other sermon, but new truck smell, coffee coladas, summer day in June, a couple years ago, and I decided, you know, these boys had never seen eastern Connecticut. Why take the highway when you can cut through Stonington? Wow, was that dumb. But, you know, being a good uncle and, you know, having moments of motion sickness myself, I get the deal, it's not fun, sipping cool, refreshing drinks, windows down, driving through Stonington, uh, on our way into Mystic, and we get to the Mystic uh, seaport, I'm pulling into the parking spot, and my nephew loses it. And I mean all of it. And, it, and he was not stingy in losing it. He, he, he turned his head from his right to his left, all over the back of my seat, all over to his right, all over himself, all over the floor, dripping down the window, inside the door panels, gone is the smell of testosterone and chainsaw. It's now something between what he was and hazelnut coffee culotta. Terrible. So what did I do? I did not join my family that day. I had a truck to clean because it was warm outside, and so I needed to get this cleaning process going. I did what all young men do, all men do, all boys do when the going really gets tough faced with that situation. You call your mom, and that's exactly what I did. My mom works in Noank. I said, Mom, I have a situation. I need help. So I drove, and I found my mom, and she helped me. You know what, though? Between my best efforts and my mom's best efforts, it still did not smell like a new truck. Mm-mm. I had to call on a professional. Professionals have magic equipment that they brought the next day. They paid, they charged me 200 I would have spent 2000 They have equipment that they do all the magic things. They take the panels off. They use all the right chemicals. And they have a machine which they close up the vehicle and they extract all of the air from the vehicle. And then somehow in that process, it removes, it smells like a new truck when they're done. It's amazing. You see, they could provide a level of cleansing for my truck that I could not, through my best efforts, provide for myself. Cows don't cut it. Sheep don't cut it. Goat don't cut it. Pigeons don't cut it. You know what cuts it? The Son of God, the eternal temple, his own blood, anointing the altar. And then Heavenly Father says, as you have sacrificed, I will save. End of story. That works. When we pray in faith, our consciences are cleansed, not because we did a good thing, because Jesus did a good thing. And it doesn't matter how we have failed. It's all failure. But the death of Jesus Christ, that time when he was in the tomb, provided a cleansing for our consciences that nothing else historically or since then, has ever provided. It is the heart and soul of the gospel. Jesus had to die. He had to stay dead because he had important chores to do that only he could do. If you entered the Holy of Holies in eternity with your own blood, it wouldn't work. It's not the same. And so Jesus accomplished this work on our behalf while his body was in the grave. How are we doing? You see that from Hebrews chapter 9? In 1 Corinthians, we saw last week that, that the fact that Jesus was dead, buried, and resurrected, if you don't get those things, then you don't really understand what it means to be a Christian. Heart and soul of the gospel here. Jesus had to die. Why? 
he had to make the perfect sacrifice for our sins and present himself to his father in the holy of holies in the heavenly temple, which is what Hebrews chapter nine records. He provides new truck smell after we have fouled ourselves, okay? That's what happened while his body was in the grave. Prove it. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. One way that we can prove that, because we didn't witness it, right? We just have to take the writer of Hebrews' word for it, but there's actual proof that the writer provides. Now we're going to prove that this is actually what happened while Jesus was dead. His body was dead. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, he offers up as proof number one. The author writes, every priest stands day by day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. It's a symbol of acceptance, right? You and I don't get to sit at the right hand of God. And those of you familiar with the New Testament know what happened when his disciples asked to sit at his right and his left hand, right? Those spots are for God to give. He gave it to his son. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. How can we prove that Jesus actually entered the Holy of Holies and cleansed our consciences by faith when we place our faith in him? Proof evidence number one. You ever see an animal sacrifice anymore? No, it stopped. You never see the early church making an animal sacrifice. There is no need for sacrifices anymore. In fact, what Jesus commands us to do is to remember, not redo, right? This do in remembrance of me. You don't need to offer animal sacrifices anymore once Jesus has done his work. Once the cleaners came to the truck, I didn't have to go out there with the shop back. That would have been a waste of time and dumb. I just had to believe that they did their job, which they did. So we remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We don't redo it. We don't have to kill anything anymore. So proof positive, number one, that Jesus made the perfect sacrifice while his body was dead, he was very busy, magical things are happening in the heavenly places, is that the first century church never offered animal sacrifices. It has never been the practice of any Christian church, Catholic or Protestant, to sacrifice anything. It has always been the practice of the church right from day one to remember the sacrifice that was made. That's proof that Jesus' sacrifice was actually accepted by his heavenly father. Let's keep going. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, proof number two. Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, we are accepted in God's sight when we claim the shed blood of Jesus on our behalf, right? That's what he's saying. By a new and living way, he has opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. We may now enter the heavenly holy of holies, the very presence of God with a clean conscience. Proof, his body, which the writer of Hebrews refers to as a veil or a curtain was torn was destroyed, right? What happened the moment that Jesus said these words? 
Father, into my hands I commit your spirit, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In your Bible, what happened that very moment? Does anybody know? The veil in the temple, separating the normal part of the temple from the Holy of Holies, 20 or 30 feet tall, six inches wide, was torn down the middle. The writer of Hebrews is referring to this. Because Jesus gave himself, ruined his own body, we may now enter the presence of God with a clear conscience. And as proof positive, three of the writers of the New Testament said, at the moment of Jesus' death on Good Friday, the veil in the temple was torn in two. Not only is God's presence now spilling out onto the planet, through faith in Jesus Christ, those who have faith in Jesus Christ may now walk where the high priest could only go once a year with bells and a rope in blood. Proof number two, the veil actually split. We have three separate witnesses that say that it did. Proof number two. This is cool, huh? Did you know what Jesus was doing when he was, his body was dead? There's some pretty cool stuff going on. And there's proof. It's not just wishful thinking. And finally, we're going to take a look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 13, the final proof that we experience weekly, if not daily, here at River Church and in every church and in every life where we have taken the name of Jesus as our own for forgiveness of our sins. Here's what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 13, referring to the time when Jesus' body was in the grave, what was going on. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. For it says, he's referring to other scripture here, when he ascended on high, he took prisoners into captivity and he gave gifts to people. What is Paul talking about? He says, but what does he ascended mean except that he descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended, this is while Jesus is dead, his body, is also the one who ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Jesus took a victory lap. This is what Paul is describing. The moment his body died, the veil in the temple was torn in two, the thief to his right was ushered into eternal glory, Jesus entered the Holy of Holies with his own blood, this exchange took place between him and his heavenly father, as you have sacrificed, I will save, and then he took one for the team. He took a victory lap through heaven and hell, because there are evil entities that God has had in bondage since the foundation of the world in the dark places, separated from him, and Jesus went and did a victory lap through there. And as proof that he's the king, as proof that he is the ultimate sacrifice, that he is perfectly accepted by his heavenly Father, listen to what Paul says. As proof of this victory lap, Verse 11, and he personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the training of the saints and the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and knowledge of God's son. Third proof, right? Number one, you've never heard of animal sacrifice in any church you've ever been to. There's no reason to. We just remember. We don't redo. Number two, the actual veil was, was split. The curtain was torn in two, right? Three separate witnesses to this, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And number three, Jesus took a victory lap after the tour of the temple with his own blood, 
And as proof of spoils of war, he distributed as conquering king spiritual gifts to his people. These gifts are given to individuals that then bless the church. He names five of them here, apostles, evangelists, teachers, prophets, and pastors. But that's not all the gifts that he gave. We have other lists of gifts in the Bible. Proof positive that while Jesus' body was in the grave, he was doing something for us that we could not do for ourselves and is proven by the presence of an ongoing ministry of the local church empowered by the Holy Spirit through gifts of the Holy Spirit. Why is Jeff Gardner in charge of the setup and teardown of this church? He has an aptitude for it, sure. Goodness knows he has the muscles for it, right? He has a gift. He has a gift. He not only has attention to detail, he has the heart to use that gift to serve this church. Why is Danielle my Make-A-Wish coordinator? Because she actually cares about princess dresses. And she's good at it. And she understands that it's all for serving children who cannot serve themselves. The closest children in this community, for many of them, will ever get to Disney is when they come to our princess party. And for this young man on Saturday, it is absolutely the closest he ever gets to Disney when River Church shows up being led by someone who has a gift. Proof positive that Jesus Christ's sacrifice was accepted by his Father and is the way to salvation to actually cleanse our consciences. Pretty cool, huh? So let's wrap up our time together this morning. We're going to have an opportunity to sing praises. We're going to have an opportunity to pray. But here's our concluding thoughts for this morning. That the people of God, when confronted with evil, we're not oppressed, right? We're not oppressed. We're empowered by the gifts that our Savior conquered and distributed to us. And we practice them on a weekly basis, if not daily, here in a church context. For men and women of faith, burial means beginning. Burial does not mean over and done. It has been our experience when we bury our loved ones that it's over and done. And we know that the separation from them in our physical relationship is, is, is for as long as we shall live. They're not coming back, right? We'll go to them, but they're not coming to us. So our experience with burial is that it's over and done, that nothing magical happens when we place a body in the ground. However, as a man or woman of faith, we understand that burial just means the beginning. Because for those of us this morning who do not know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, here's the deal, which has been clearly illustrated from this powerful message of God found in Hebrews chapter 9, which is, as my son has sacrificed, so I will save. And then it's proven three different ways. And so this morning, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ by faith and you're wrestling with the impact of a guilty conscience, there's nothing you can do to make it up to your wife, to your husband, to your children, to your family, to your employer, to yourself, and most importantly, to the God who created and loved you. It's never gonna happen through our own efforts, right? Once the professionals have come, it's, it's done. Let the professionals do their job. Jesus is the professional. Place your faith in Jesus Christ, confessing and repenting of your sins. Turn from our sins. Accept the power of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and take a new name. And then enter a relationship with God with a clean conscience. Because guilt just motivates us 
to confess and repent. Guilt that drives us from God is an attack of the evil one, right? We know this as people of faith. For those of us who already know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, here's the point this morning, that when we experience suffering, things that feel like we're dead and buried or we wish that we were, it is evidence that God is working powerfully behind the scenes, right? To the apostles and to his mom and to all the witnesses in the first century church, there was nothing to look at except a stone rolled up against an entrance. There was just a dead body in there. It looked like it was over and done, that the suffering was for no purpose. And yet we now have a better understanding of what was actually happening. So that as a man or woman of faith, when we're going through difficult times, the powerful truth of the gospel and the biblical teaching is that suffering is proof positive that God is working behind the scenes. He is doing things in a time of suffering that simply cannot be done any other way. It's a powerful takeaway for us this morning. So we're gonna have the opportunity to pray, to thank the Lord for his word and to prepare our hearts for Easter. Would you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for capturing your thoughts and ideas and sharing them with us, Father. It's stuff that we can't make up. Who of us would dare to presume to know what was accomplished while Jesus' body was in the grave? None of us would presume to walk on that holy ground. And yet, Father, you have shared that truth with us. And I pray, Father, for those of us who have never accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that we would understand the power of your gospel, the power of your good news, that we can live in communion and fellowship with the creator of the world with a clean conscience because of the work that was accomplished while his body was dead. Father, for those of us who are going through a time of sorrow, for those of us who are going through a time of suffering, for those of us who are going through a time of struggle, may we be encouraged by your word this morning, empowered through your Holy Spirit, speaking to our hearts and our minds, and yes, our consciences too, that you're working behind the scenes, that we place our faith in your kindness. If you were this kind to us through the death of your son, will not your kindness extend to us today? And we know that it does. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.